0: Okay, hello, everyone. Uh, Let me know if there's a problem with the sound at any time. And just wave or shout or whatever. It's just lovely to have you all here. Um, As you know, William Boyd needs very little introduction because he's been so much part of our cultural life and our landscape for many years. Um, Since the publication of his very first novel, A Good Man in Africa, in 1981, when he was then a young man teaching at St. Hilda's in Oxford, he has shewed the life of the Don for one of freedom of writing, both novels and screenplays, spending time in France, a country that has taken him to his heart, its heart, and a career that has also taken him into the worlds of film and art. But one of the things that's remarkable about Will is that he's one of the few writers that began their career with an outstanding success. A good man in Africa won the Whitbread Award and the Somerset Maugham Prize, and his second published just, I think, a year later. Very yes, close. Yes, yes. um, an ice cream war was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So it was an extraordinary, stellar beginning to a career. And an awful lot of people go downwards from there. But in the case of Will, um, he's continued through a long and incredibly consistent career until we reach this wonderful point with his new novel, Waiting for Sunrise, published the year of an important birthday. Um, with the most extraordinary views, and it's gone to number two, straight to number two in the Sunday Times bestseller list. So Will's going to talk, he's going to read for a bit, and then, as this is your event, you're his readers and you've all had the book, I'm going to throw it open for questions. for Will.
1: <coughs> I think I'll stand up. Um, uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, um, you can certainly see me, that's the main thing. Um, What I'm going to do is read one short chapter of uh, of Waiting for Sunrise about the but I should set it up, I I guess. It's very funny. um, I think this is true of a lot of authors, that you get a kind of obsession for a city without ever being there or ever having gone there. And I recognize in in my own life, very early on, um, before Good Man in Africa was published, I started writing a series of short stories set in Los Angeles. Um, this is the, the, it would be the late 1970s and why 1970s Los Angeles should have haunted me I, I've no idea but uh, it, it did and I wrote three or four short stories um, set in the city and then the next city that took me over was Berlin but Berlin in the 1920s and my novel do come in as you sit down <laughs> um, and um, I I, I didn't get to Berlin, because the novel I wrote that featured Berlin was The New Confessions, published in 1987, and the the wall had disobligingly not come down by then, and apparently the only way you could get into East Berlin, which was like the old Berlin, uh, unless you're a member of the Communist Party, was to be accompanied by a British soldier. And I had the clue how I was going to set that up. so, uh, my Berlin uh, obsession was a, a purely imaginary one. But thus encouraged, I, I allowed my mind to go uh, wherever I wanted it to do, and um, I wrote a, a novel set in Manila in Philippines, 1902, which I'd never visited, still haven't visited. Um, <clears throat> I got a letter from the head of J. Walter Thompson, the advertising company in Manila, and he said, Dear Mr. Boyd, I... I um, loved your book. I thought you'd like to know that every new client we get here is J. Walter Thompson Manila. We give a copy of The Blue Afternoon to to explain something of, of our fascinating past and, and our beautiful co- country. Um, could you please tell me when you lived in the city? And, uh, so, no, no higher compliment. Um, but I'd never been, and this, uh, Manila still awaits. Um, and then I had a Lisbon obsession uh, briefly, and uh, wrote a, a short story set in Lisbon, and which I have turned into a, a film. But the the next obsession was Vienna, and this is where it becomes germane to um, to waiting for sunrise. For some reason, I became very intrigued by Vienna again at a particular period of time before the First World War. Um, and I I don't I think it might have been because when I was at university, I I did a degree in philosophy in English literature, and one of the philosophers we studied was Ludwig Wittgenstein. I couldn't understand a word he said in his philosophy, but I became very interested in the man. A very strange man, Wittgenstein. Um, and of course, he came from a vastly wealthy Viennese uh, family. And um, I think that's what triggered off this interest in in Vienna at that time. And I wrote a short story called Transfigured Night, um, which features Wittgenstein. I, I gave him a fictional episode in his life, um, uh, which I've done many times, actually, for for Brahms and for Chekhov and for Cyril Connolly as well, that instead of writing a biography, I make up a bit of their life that they didn't know they'd experienced, and um, thereby have a kind of portal into the, the, the man himself. Um, but that began my Vienna obsession, um, and I sent, at the end of a novel I wrote called Armadillo, I sent my hero and his girlfriend off to Vienna uh, as a kind of wonderful promise. Um, I, do, um, again, hadn't been there, but finally I got the chance to go to the city. Um, I was asked to write a piece about the artist Egon Schiele, who I, um, again, strange and tormented man, um, but I was, very, I was a great admirer of Schiele's work, so I went to Vienna, and for the first time was able to check out the real thing uh, against my imagination version of it, and uh, wasn't disappointed. But that's where I think Waiting for Sunrise began, because again, in the way that uh, a novelist just follows his or her nose, I've been reading a lot of Freud, uh, a lot about Freud. I'd read the huge uh, Peter Gay biography, uh, and I've never been psychoanalyzed, but I became very interested, again, more of an interest in the man himself. Um, Certain things about Freud, I found very intriguing. Um, he was a compulsive cigar smoker. He then got uh, cancer on his soft palate, and he had. Have, and this is we're talking, you know, late 19th century. He had um, most of his soft palate cut away, and a large chunk of his upper jaw, and he had to put this horrible plastic prosthetic in his mouth every day uh, because otherwise he couldn't speak. But he carried on smoking cigars until he <laughs> till he eventually died. So something uh, something that sort of idiosyncratic detail draws me to, to people, um, and um, the idea of Freud sitting down of an evening and you know drawing on his cigar and you know tasting the horrible bakelite plastic of his prosthetic roof of his mouth um, still haunts me rather. Um, anyway. Vienna uh, was there, and I went to the Freud Museum, which is his old apartment and his old consulting room. Worth a visit if you're ever ever there, because uh, it's the museum is interesting, but what's fascinating is to go to the place he lived, and he lived there for a long time. And you go into this little building of Berggasser, and there's an archway, and a kind of courtyard, and if I remember correctly, uh, a lift and a couple of the flights of stairs. Freud lived on the first floor, and I, it was very quiet uh, that morning, uh, and nobody was around. So, I climbed the stairs to the first floor, and there are two doors: one to the family apartments, one to the consulting rooms. And above the bell push on the consulting rooms is the nameplate: Professor Dr. Freud. And there's a an eerie moment, thinking, I could have been here a hundred years ago, pressed the bell. I'm having these very curious dreams, Dr. Freud. <laughs> um, uh, and I thought, this was, this was the, the, the time travel moment, and I thought, what must it have been like when psychoanalysis started to come and submit yourself to the talking cure? How strange would that have been? How daring would that have been? And what risks might you have been taking to lie on a couch or sit in an armchair and tell a complete stranger your darkest secrets. And I thought, well, here's the, here's my way into my Vienna novel, as I then thought about it. And um, uh, so I thought uh, 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 all my novels work in this way. I then start asking myself questions. And I get answers to these questions which provoke more questions. So the first question was, who is this person coming to see, um, not Freud, but a fictional psychiatrist? Um, that I can say is, is it a man or is it a woman because I've often written from the point of view of a, of a woman but I thought no I'll make it a, a man and then what what's his name how old is he, what does he do and so and I thought I'll make him a, a young actor I'm very interested in actors. i a lot of actor friends mm-hmm. and um, it's the most intriguing profession and uh, I, I quizzed a lot of my actor friends uh, before I, r- I wrote this novel to try and gets to the depths of the psyche that makes an actor, makes a good actor, not a, not a bad actor. I'm, I'm a bad actor, so I know exactly what that's like. But uh, um, make, uh, uh, what, what is it that happens when you act? Um, so I made him an actor, gave him a proper job, gave him a, an unusual sexual dysfunction. And, uh, and he's engaged to be married, uh, so he wants to get it sorted before the wedding night, if he possibly can. And that's why he's come to Vienna. And I'm now setting up chapter two. Um, He comes to see this English psychiatrist, Dr. Ben Simon. It's 1913. Um, First World War is a year or more away. Um, Nobody's expecting it, of course. Um, And uh, he is nervous um, because of the risks he's taking and because of the the leap he's taking into the, the dark of this particular therapy. And um, so he goes to a street, which is, I've made it, I moved it two blocks up from Freud Street, um, and put Dr. Ben Simon's consulting rooms on Wassergasse, not Berggasser. And um, Lysander um, goes to his first appointment. Bear with me for a snack. Chapter 2, Miss Bull. Dr. Ben Simon's receptionist, a slim, bespectacled, severe-looking woman, had shown him into a small waiting room and mentioned, politely, that he was, in fact, some forty minutes early for his appointment. Therefore, if he wouldn't mind waiting until... My mistake. Foolish. Coffee? No, thank you. Lysander sat in a low, armless black leather chair, one of four in the room, placed in a loose semicircle, facing an empty grate below a plaster mantelpiece and once again called on calmness to soothe his agitated mood. How could he have been so wrong about the time? He would have assumed the hour set for this consultation would have been mentally carved in stone. He looked around and saw a black bowler hat hung on the hat and coat stand in the corner. Previous appointments, he assumed. Then, seeing one hat, he realized he could have gone back to the park for his boater after all. He's lost his hat. Damn it, he said to himself. Then, bucket. it relishing the obscenity. It had cost him a guinea, that hat. He stood up and looked at the pictures on the wall that were etchings of vast, ruined buildings, moss mantled, overgrown with weeds and saplings, all tumbled coping stones, shattered pediments, and toppled columns that seemed vaguely familiar. No artist's name came to him, another hole in his moth-eaten education. He moved to the window that overlooked the small central courtyard of the apartment building. A tree grew there, A sycamore, he saw. At least he could identify some trees in a square of tramped browning grass edged by the disused carriage house and loose boxes, and, as he watched, an old-aproned woman appeared from them, effortfully limp-lugging a brimming coal scuttle. He turned away and paced around, carefully folding back with the toe of his shoe the flipped-over corner of the worn Persian rug on the parquet floor. He heard some voices, unusually urgent, raised from the receptionist's anteroom, and then the door opened and a young woman came in and shut it behind her with a forceful bang. And Schuldigung, she said gracelessly, glancing at him, and sat down on one of the chairs and rummaged vigorously through her handbag before pulling out a small handkerchief and blowing her nose. Lysander stepped quietly back to the window. He could sense this woman's unease, her tension, coming off her in waves, as if some dynamo inside her were generating this fibrility, this, the German word came to him pleasingly, this angst. He turned, and their eyes met. She had the most unusual eyes, he saw, the palest hazel, and they were large and wide, the white visibly surrounding the iris, as if she were staring with great intensity, or had been shocked in some way. Pretty face, he thought, neat nose, pointed strong chin, very olive skin, Foreign. Her hair was pinned up under a wide, blood-red berry, and she wore a dove-grey velvet jacket over a black skirt. On the jacket lapel was a large red-and-yellow shellac brooch of a crude-looking parrot. Artistic, I thunder thought. Laced ankle boots, small feet. A very small, petite woman, in fact, in a state. He smiled, turned away, and looked at the courtyard. The stout old housekeeper was heading doggedly back to the stables with her empty scuttle. What did she want with all that coal in high summer? Surely, strengthens the English. Lysander looked round. I am English, actually, he said, warily. How can you tell? He felt annoyed that he clearly wore his nationality like a badge. You've a copy of the graphic in your pocket, she said, pointing at his folded newspaper. Rather gives you away. But, anyway, most of Dr. Ben Simon's patients are English, so it was an easy guess. Her accent was educated. She was obviously English herself, despite her somewhat exotic coloring. You don't happen to have a cigarette on you, do you? she asked, by any faint and lucky chance. I do, as it happens, but, my Sander indicated the printed sign laid on the mantelpiece, Bitte nicht rauchen. Ah, of course. Would it be all right if I filched one for later? Lysander took his cigarette case from his jacket pocket, opened it and offered it to her. She chose one cigarette, said, may I, and then took another before he could give her permission, slipping them into her handbag. I have to see Dr. Ben Simon very urgently, you see, she said briskly, in a no-nonsense manner, so I do hope you don't mind if I barge the queue. At this she smiled him a smile of such innocent brilliance that Lysander almost blinked. On quick reflection, Lysander thought he did rather mind, actually, but said, Of course not, and smiled back uncertainly. He turned again to the window pane, touched the knot of his tie, and cleared his throat. Do sit down if you want to, the young woman said. I am very happy standing, he said. I find these low armless chairs rather uncomfortable. Yes, they are rather, aren't they? Lysander wondered if he should introduce himself, but then considered that a doctor's waiting room was a kind of place where people, strangers, might prefer to preserve their anonymity. It wasn't as if they were meeting in an art gallery or a theatre foyer, after all. He heard a slight noise and looked over his shoulder. The woman had stood up and had gone to one of the etchings of ruins —what was that artist's name? — and was using its glass as a mirror, tucking fallen strands of hair back under her berry and pulling down small wispy curls in front of her ears. Lysander noticed how her short velvet jacket revealed the full swell of her hips and buttocks under the black skirt. Her ankle boots had three-inch heels, yet she was still very small in stature. What are you looking at? She said abruptly, meeting his gaze in the reflection of the etching glass. I uh, was admiring your booties, Lysander improvised quickly and smoothly. Did you buy them here in Vienna? She never answered as the door to Dr. Ben-Simon's consulting room opened at that moment, and two men stepped out, talking and chuckling to each other. Lysander knew at once which one was Dr. Ben-Simon, an older man in his forties, quite bald with a brown-trimmed beard flecked with grey. Everything about the other man, to Lysander's eyes, shouted, Soldier! A navy double-breasted suit, a banded tie below a stiff collar, narrow cuffed trousers above shoes, so polished they might have been patent, tall, ascetically lean, the small, neat, dark moustache. But the young woman was immediately in a kind of frenzy, interrupting them, calling Dr. Ben Simon's name, apologizing, and at the same time insisting on seeing him, absolutely essential, an emergency. The military man stepped back, leaned back as Dr. Ben Simon, glancing at Lysander, swept the yammering woman into his room, Lysander hearing him say, in a stern, low voice, as he did so, this must never happen again, Miss Bull before the door to his consulting room shut behind them. Good God, said the military type dryly. He was English as well. What was going on there? She seemed very agitated, I have to say, Lysander said. Catch two cigarettes off me. What's the world coming to, the man said, lifting his bowler off its wooden hook. He held it in his hands and looked candidly at Lysander. Have we met before, he said. No, I don't think so. You seem oddly familiar somehow. I must look like someone you know. Must be that. He held out his hand. I'm Alwyn Munroe, Lysander Reef. Now that does ring a bell, the man said. He shrugged and cocked his head, narrowed his eyes as if searching his memory, and then smiled as he gave up and moved to the door. Don't feed her any more cigarettes, if I were you. She looks a bit dangerous to me. He left, and Lysander resumed his scrutiny of the small, drab courtyard outside. He extracted every possible detail from the view— the basket-weave pattern of the paving stones, the dog-toothed moulding on the arch above the stable door, a damp streak on the brickwork under a dripping tap. He kept his mind occupied. A few minutes later, the young woman appeared from Dr. Ben Simon's room, evidently much calmer, more composed. She picked up her handbag. Thank you for letting me barge ahead, she said breezily, and for the Siggies. You're very kind. Not at all, Lysander said. She said goodbye and sauntered out her long skirt swinging. She glanced back at him as she closed the door behind her, and Lysander caught a final glimpse of those strange light brown hazel eyes, like a lion's eyes, he thought. But she was called Miss Bull. And, uh, of course, Hetty Bull is a disaster uh, (laughs) in Lysander's life. Um, Sort of enjoyable disaster. Um, But... uh, That's the beginning of his his embroilment in Vienna, and what happens in Vienna in the the few months um, that he's living there, in a way, determines what happens in the novel. Everything, in a way, begins in Vienna, and every explanation is possibly Viennese as well. But I'll say no more. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, I, I've got lots of questions, but I'm going to stop myself I'll, asking I'll, them. I'll
1: stay standing. <laughs> oh, yes, that's, that's, that's uh,
0: so, uh, let's, let's see who would like to ask them. I just wondered why you'd use so many unusual names.
1: Well, that's a very good question. People, um, people often ask me about this, but I don't think my names are unusual at all. <laughs> um, uh, people have, you know, interesting names. I mean, there are people who have you know, perfectly good, ordinary names, um, but I think if you open a phone book and just run your finger down a, a row of uh, a, a, any letter of the alphabet, you'll find the most extraordinary names. Um, so, I, my, it's one of my tricks of the trade, in a way. I try to choose a name for a character, even a very minor character, that sort of has a ring to it. Um, and. If the name is right, I feel that character is alive and I think the the reader responds in the, in the same way um, uh, if you, there's a, you know if you call a character you know Sally Brown or um, Johnny Thompson, which are perfectly good names in case there's a Sally Brown or a Johnny Thompson in the, in the room um, uh, it somehow it doesn't you know sparkle um, so better to call somebody hetty Bull or. Alwyn Monroe which and Edwardian names are extremely unusual um, and um, I've done it throughout my uh, novel my the character the central character of my first novel was called Morgan Leafy. Um, and uh, I just think if you if you get the name right then um, the the characters already begin to live and live and breathe but I, I do not think they're unusual I think they're normal and I as, as I said before in, in a world that can admit somebody called Henry Dent Brocklehurst who who, who marries L- Lily Maltese. Um, <laughs> nothing I can come up with is uh, is you know, remotely as far-fetched as that. Um, so it's a it's it's a reflection, I think, of of uh, the world as it is. But also um, it's a it's a very useful technique in in the novel. You know, don't. Don't sort of complacently christen your characters, is my advice. You know, think, of a, think of an interesting name, and you're already you know, 25% there. <laughs> I've, I've read quite a few of your books, and, that, and one thing that strikes me very um, uh, quickly is how you establish the characters, uh, and you, you become very um, aware of them early on in the book. You, they have such strong characters. And I wonder if, if you get that from your uh, acquaintances or friends, or whether you actually dream up these characters mostly. Do you feed off other people a lot? Well, uh, not consciously. Um, I think, you know, you can divide writers into many types of binary divisions. And one of the obvious ones is there are autobiographical writers and there are non-autobiographical writers. And I'm definitely in, in the second category. And you can see writers who can only write about things that have happened to them or only use their circle of friends or um, events they're familiar with as raw material for their novels. But I'm completely the opposite of of that. I I make it up. I invent things. Um, I use my imagination. Of course, there's a a, a significant amount of me that goes into these inventions, but I'm sort of unaware of exactly what it is. And... um, uh, I, I don't um, go around logging uh, my life in, in the hope that it will provide me with information that I can use later in my novels, because I can sit down and just make it up. You know, it's, uh, but I think the, you know, the, there are writers who do that and there are writers who don't, and the, there's no nothing to say one method is, is better than the other. It just depends on the nature of, of the writer. Um, but. Uh, Having made up a character, uh, you then have to make them live and breathe. And I'm a, a realistic novelist, and I uh, want the world of my novels, whether it's contemporary London, as in my last novel, or um, you know, early 20th century Vienna, to seem absolutely real and uh, tactile and textured and, uh, and, and vivid. Um, and similarly, the people I put in that world which I, uh, who I invent, also have to have that same kind of individual um, allure. and uh, it, it, you know, People are um, are odd, I say this, you know, I, I, everybody's strange, and I think what you have to do in, in a novel is reflect the idiosyncrasy of the individual. And so, as a novelist, when you're creating a character, like Hetty Bull, who I, I knew, I wanted this sort of mad, bad, and dangerous-to-know, seductress, uh, terribly tempting, but, you know, terrifying (laughs) um, femme fatale figure. But I had to, I couldn't just go to central casting. You know, that's the thing. You can just go to, there are innumerable stereotypes you could reach for, and I think that's how you evaluate good literature or bad literature. The more people go to central casting for their People, or their language, or their situations—the worse the novel is. So I think the more serious you are as a novelist, the more you have to individualise everything. The more you have to make it fresh and, um, and and not something you've seen or read, you know, a hundred times before. So the challenge to you as a writer, thinking in this case of this particular character, but it applies to every single character in the novel, is how do I make this creature? Um, seem like a living breathing human being that you could imagine walking into into this room, and you know there are various tricks of the trade which I will not divulge um, but that's the challenge you know and that's why um, that's what i you know in a way your questions are is a sort of compliment because i w- I want that feeling that when a character like Baldwin monroe the uh, the military type who um, Lysander and he sees a lot more of him. But you want the the reader and uh, to have a, a very distinct impression of this man, whether it's something he says, or something he's wearing, some gesture he makes, um, a little dark moustache, something stays in your mind, and uh, uh, the character is often running in, in your fiction. But it's uh, it depends on the type. You are, and the kind of um, effect you're trying to get. If I was writing about somebody I knew well, and was putting them in a novel, well, I suppose I'd have to disguise them, wouldn't I? <laughs> and so, whereas if you make it, make them up, uh, you know, you can do anything you want. You can populate your the world of your novel with uh, with all all manner of people. But of course, you know, I I, I observe and I, I I look around me and I. I unconsciously take a, a detail here or a, an overheard remark there and and meld it all together, but I'm not um, using my life as um, as the, the subject or the raw material for my fiction. I always quote this forgotten Scottish novelist called James Kennaway. I don't know if any of you have heard of, heard of him. James Kennaway was an autobiographical writer. He could only write about his life and things that had happened to him. And he wrote... Um, some very good novels, one called Household Ghosts, one called, um, I can a Scottish military novel, uh, me, Tunes of Glory, uh, made into a film with Alec Guinness, the novel, and then he sort of run out of things to write about, because, you know, he'd used up his life. And even War said, you know, I've only got one novel left in me, it's, it's the Second World War, and his life wasn't interesting. He's a very autobiographical novelist, even War. But James Kenway had nothing to write about, so he encouraged his wife to have an affair with another man.
0: <laughs>
1: so, so he we, could see...
0: We, we published a book of Yeah. So he, so he could
1: see what it was like being jealous, you know, um, and wrote a very bad book, <laughs> and, uh, and as did the lover um, of his wife. Um, no names. Um, but uh, um, but that's, that's a pitfall one doesn't want to fall into, you know. Um, but uh, it, he was that type of writer. You do nothing more, but I'm, I'm you know demonstrably and sort of um, immovably in the non-autobiographical camp. So I I make it all up, you know, um, but where does that come from? Who knows?
0: I think you've actually given a very good answer for why your career has been so consistent um, and has operated at such a high level for such a long time. You've actually told us all right. But just before I pass on to the next question, I I want to tell you that I love people so much and one of the reasons why I think she's such an incredible character is that you have absolutely got what women artists are like, or artists are like, and what women artists in particular, right down to
1: the close. Yes, and I think, you know, um, uh, the, the details, and you know, again, it's, it's a, a way of evaluating whether a, a novelist is good or, or bad or serious or, or you know, um, complacent and lazy what are, the, what are the details, and, you know, the, you know, God is in the details, or the devil's in the detail, but it's very important to, to not just say, you know, a red jacket, um, or um, high-heeled shoes, or, um, uh, you know, it was a sunny day. Um, you can take that very simple um, statement and make it a little bit better, a little bit more individual and unusual. Um, you can't do it all the time, there are some writers who do it all the time, uh, James Joyce brings to mind, um, but uh, um, you, um, you, know, th- you know, I'm telling a complicated story so I can't linger endlessly over uh, long passages of description, but when you do want to describe someone, you have to take real care, I think, to make it uh, vivid and particular and, again, not something you've Read you know a hundred times before, um, and you know, that's an, an application and a conscious act uh, of will that you make you make as a writer. So you say a, a lodging house in Vienna in 1913, the Pension Krabinek, which doesn't exist, but I I built it and I furnished it and I decorated it and I know the layout of its rooms. Um, And uh, I can draw a map of it if you want. But it's completely sprung from my mind, not from uh, an estate agent's brochure that I got from an early 20th century Viennese um, realtor. Um, So uh, um, it does take time. But the dividends are are fantastic because it's all about making your world utterly mm, individual and not um, familiar and cliché. Yeah, so, um, it, but it's, uh, it, it is it is about that, getting the details right. Um, I've actually, I think I've read all your novels, so I have about 100 questions I'd like to ask you, but if I'm only allowed to ask you one, <laughs> has everyone in this room actually read and finished Waiting for Sunrise? Because I wanted to ask some questions about plot later on, but maybe I shouldn't if people haven't. Yeah. So, can I ask you a question that was actually born out of my ignorance, and having only finished the book yesterday, I haven't had a chance to research it, but is parallelism an invention of yours, or is it an actual analytical theory of substance? Uh, no, it's, I made it all up. As as um, uh, uh, again, no, I, Again, it's one of these questions, I, I knew that I you know to write about Lysander's therapy, and you think, well, I can investigate the various options that were available at the time and, and research them, Was it, you know, Freudian or Jungian or Reichian or, or whatever. And thought, um, well, why not make up my own? You know, it's much more fun. And um, and so I, 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 you know, I didn't make it all up. I pinched bits from the this, uh, this wonderful American poet who I love, called Wallace Stevens, uh, and who, and he had pinched a lot of his ideas from. Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, so I sort of cherry-picked bits of it and then constructed this therapy, which, uh, lying to you if you want, um, um, which you may have read the book, but it's basically the premise is that, uh, that that the world we know is a collaboration between what's out there and what we bring to it. Uh, it's an old concept, and uh, if you if you wake up feeling fed up, the world seems colorless and dull and drab. If you wake up feeling elated, uh, the, the sun is shining on the green leaves and uh, people look interesting and and uh, you're curious. So it's very easy to understand that the, the, the construct that is our life is actually that we contribute hugely to. Um, by that token, the life you've led is a mixture of what's out there and what you've contributed to it. So your memories of your life are part real and part fictive. So the whole idea of parallelism is you can to those bad memories, uh, re-remember them in a nice way. (laughs) And again, add the details, um, and the more detailed your re-remembering is, the more the the bad memory becomes seeded by the new memory. And the neurosis associated with that bad memory Begins to erode and, and drift away, and suddenly you're feeling normal and cured again. So uh, it's it's highly plausible. Though I, I, I you know I, I don't know if the bottom falls out of the novel writing market. I may set myself up as a parallelist <laughs> therapist. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 an interesting idea, and it's you know it's, it's, it's as, as old as the romantic poets. Um, I did a PhD on—I on, failed to complete the PhD—so on on uh, Percy Shelley's poems. And the one line or two lines of Shelley I can quote are from his poem Mont Blanc about the the great mountain that so inspired the Romantics. Um, and it's, I paraphrase; I probably misquote it. So it goes like this: "And what were thou, O mountain, if to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude?" were mere vacancy, exactly that point. You're looking at a lump of rock, and you're awestruck. But is it in the lump of rock, or is it something you bring to it? So this is the source of parallelism. It all goes back to my in- incomplete PhD <laughs> thesis. But uh, um, no, it's. Um, I do this all the time. I make things up, I make people up, um, I make artists up. Um, and uh, it's part of the pleasure quotient in, in writing and it's more stimulating and more intriguing for me and luck, is, so it's uh, equally stimulating and intriguing for the reader.
0: Hi, thank you. Um, I heard a really lovely story about Michael Morpergo and um, Warhorse, in which he had uh, created a, a fictional portrait in a real village hall. And so people kept turning up at the village hall to look at the portrait that wasn't there. So Michael Malpurgo had to commission a portrait to put into the village hall. And as a writer who has frequently had novels set with a very clear sense of place, and, and yet you've made things up or moved things to streets or indeed created fictional periods of time in the lives of real people I wonder what sense of responsibility you feel to readers and and to subsequent researchers <laughs> to how when you've created things within a very real setting
1: uh, absolutely none it is the is the short answer because it says a novel on the front so it's a kind of you know warning you know um, no, I think that the the there is a responsibility but but it's to yourself. Um, it's rather like um, you you write a short story set in Lisbon without going there, and you go to Lisbon, and you go, oh, God, it's nothing like this at all. Um, so, but I don't worry about um, people thinking that um, there's a hospital in Southwark called St. Bottles um, because I built it uh, for my novel... Um, um, Thunderstorms, um, and I and I don't mind um, people saying that um, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein never met the poet Georg Trackel, you know, um, mm-hmm. because um, it's an, it's fiction, and um, but it's realistic fiction, and in a way, it's that um, it, if somebody goes to um, see the the house uh, on number 24, Wasagatha where Dr. Ben Simon had his consulting rooms. It's a fantastic compliment, in a way, because the fiction has worked so powerfully that it's, it ceases. And I've spent a, a lot of time and I've written a lot of books pushing fiction into the boundaries, you know, over the boundaries of the real, precisely to demonstrate how powerful fiction is. Um, and, of course, the, my fictitious artist, Nat Tate, and the, 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 the so-called Nat Tate hoax, which still haunts me 14 years after it, it occurred, is perhaps the, the, the best example of it. And, and he sold, last November, in Sotheby's, a drawing by Nat Tate <laughs> uh, for real money, £7,250. So where, where, where is the blurring? blurry line between uh, what is fictive and, and what is real? But I think it's all in the interest of making uh, fiction more empowered and uh, showing why people go to novels, go to short stories, or go to films, theatre, etc. Because it's tremendously alluring and it has a, a kind of, there are truths there that you won't find in all the reportage, history books, newspapers uh, that you could read in a lifetime. And um, I think that's what why novels uh, live and breathe and why people want to read them. And if you can, um, in the process of writing one, make people think, I'm sure I was in that hospital, you know, um, then uh, you've done your job properly. But
0: I, I I feel no responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hello, <laughs> I will. <laughs> you um you spoke so beautifully about um about Vienna being your inspiration and about about place, whether you've been there or or, or not been there. And um, I wondered if place is always the kick off point for you, or is it an incident or might it be a character, and as uh, sort of part of that? If you were advising someone just starting out on a on a career of writing fiction, where is a good place to begin?
1: Well, the the answer is it you know it's a frustrating answer because it, it it all depends. You know sometimes sometimes it is a character. Uh, Seizes you. Um, sometimes it's it's a, a situation, a, a narrative potential. Um, for me, it's not. It's I mean, I suppose Vienna, in a way, did kickstart uh, this novel, but then it became Lysander's story. And for me, um, place is incredibly important, but it, for the same reason as eating and drinking and clothes and transport are, in that they make that world real. Um, uh, a, 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 all the places are described in this novel, which starts in Vienna, goes back to London, um, goes to Geneva, the Western Front, briefly. Uh, quite a London novel, in fact. Go to East Sussex. Um, but I I, invented a village. Uh, not far from Lewis, uh, and called it Claverly, and um, described it as, you, people might be going to Claverly, um, and, um, but it, it's to do with um, making the, the world of the novel real, but I, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the novel is all about story and character, and, and more times than, than most, it starts with, with a character. I always remember my Oh, perhaps my longest novel, New Confessions, which is a big 500-pager. I was sitting in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, dutifully reading my way through Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Les Confessions, because you know, I thought Wordsworth had ripped him off, and my incomplete, might have been a chapter for my un- in- uh, PhD thesis, so, uh, this extraordinary book, and I suddenly thought, what would it be like if Jean-Jacques Rousseau had been alive today, you know, bingo, novel, but it was character driven, and the, I was reading about th- this strange, uh, driven egomaniac that was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I thought, well, let's just shift him out of the 18th century, bring him down in the 20th, and see what happens, and that was the beginning of, of that novel. Um, uh, i think time and again it's 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 character driven and i think if if, if if as a piece of advice um even if you if you stumble across as, as i have done on two occasions at a historical period uh, that is little known and you punch the air and you think wow i'm i'm a terra incognita i'm the first explorer um uh in my case, it was the First World War in East Africa, which my second novel, Ice Cream War, dealt with. Nobody knew about that war. It was completely forgotten. Um, or uh, British covert operations in, in America before Pearl Harbor, again, swept way under the carpet. Um, but feel is the characters in that world. So I think uh, get, if you stumble across a story or an idea for a story, question should be who is it that's going to live that through that and then make that person as you know as, as real as possible and and you're, you're off and running you know. um, and uh, you know, I think that's it comes back to the, the character of the people in the telling. Uh, significant and again a new theory about the stereotype you Stuff you've seen a thousand times, and uh, that's done by the idiosyncrasy and the individual nature of the of the person in, in the story. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that
0: the you see the books in, in essentially three parts, uh, and the the third part feels like quite a different type of book, so that the first part starts out. It's almost like it's an interwoven trilogy of shorter stories about one person. And I was wondering to what extent that was always the plan, or to what extent you were as you were writing you would hope you needed to take Lycanus like journey in a different direction.
1: Well it is it's very planned because that's the way I, I work and again it's it's not for everybody. I mean I, um, I use these expressions who I think worked. She talked about there's a say there's a period of invention and then there's a period of composition, and uh, that definitely applies to me. So I I plan the novel with an immense thoroughness before I even start writing on page one, um, and the the period of invention uh, takes longer than the period of composition. Um, uh, so I. Fill notebooks. I travel. I buy books. I street maps. You know everything that will be useful for my story as it's evolving, without starting on page one, and um, block out in real detail what's happening and who's involved and so on. So Lysander's journey, there's nothing haphazard about it at all. Um, It's it's it was entirely there as a kind of skeleton. And I knew how it was going to end. And then, in the period of composition, I added the, the flesh to the skeleton. I, I wrote the, the, the story I had planned out. I, I do make enormous changes as I'm writing, if I get better ideas. But just uh, suits me as a method, because I then optically write with confidence of where I'm heading. And even I don't feel like writing. I've got no excuse. Uh, I can't you know. that. I wonder what happens next. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'll do this, and uh, ha- have a think, you know, and uh, I, have got no, I can't do that because I've, I know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but as I say, it's not for, for every novelist, but it, uh, it's, it removes anxiety, is the other thing. Uh, I've I never abandoned a novel, uh, and uh, so many novelists abandon a novel because they, they run into that brick wall of uh, what happens next. And they put it aside for a while and hope that, that the muse will descend. And I develop things that I then kick out um, uh, in this in this period of, um, you know, it looks like I'm not doing much, but you know, the, the brain is highly active uh, as I figure out the, the narrative of the novel. And, you know, I do write um, uh, very complicated narratives. It's the kind of book I like to read and you know they there are they're hard to construct and they take a lot of thought so that the, the the gears mesh and the moving synchronized and um uh i don't want you know long passages of you know psychological nuance i want things to to be changing uh and moving the the story forward uh so you can't write that kind of novel i think on the hoof, you have to you have to sit down and plan it. So um, this true. There are swerves in in uh, waiting for sunrise, which take the the reader by surprise. And but I would say so much the better. Um, uh, there's no, there's nothing like being engrossed or, or beguiled in, in a book, as we all know. And um, I think the, uh, the the kind of unspoken contract between author and, and reader is try and try and provide Pleasure uh, um, in in the text, uh, and it can be done in ways. But um, you know, I have my way, and um, it it usually involves a very complicated plot, and uh, things going hideously wrong. Um, but I actually don't know really why I'm taking the story in, in certain directions. I just know it works. So you can make mistakes. You can a slap in your face, and you can also. Um, Surprise people. Um, there's, there's a certain amount of instinct, as well as this rather um, uh, um, planned method methodology.
0: Um, I think we've got room time for about one. Thank you. And on, on my way, I will just say that one of the most frightening ways I've ever heard of a of a novelist um, starting a book is John Irving saying he can only start a book when he knows what his last sentence is. I can't imagine.
1: Well, I, ha- I have written the last sentence before I've started on page one, because um, if you know how it's going to end, um, sometimes you do actually sketch out your last paragraph of the second novel, Ice Cream War. I uh, read the paragraph before I started page one, because I was see, ripping off W. H. Auden, and I had to make sure it was sufficiently buried in the text <laughs> that nobody, nobody would recognize it. Um, but, uh, no, it's, I understand that, absolutely. You no. Know.
0: Could you describe your work
1: today? Uh Well, yes, I can. I mean, uh, stand stand by to yawn. You know, um, no, no, novelist novelist lives are, are very boring in a way, which is why I'm not an autobiographical writer. Um, I'm i I've sort of I used to write like most writers in the morning, but I've now my metabolism has changed. And I'm now a kind of afternoon writer, so I kind of live my life in in the morning, you know, go to the dry cleaners and, and things like that. And after lunch, I settle down and I write for about three hours, which is about all I can manage before the, my brain kind of seizes up. I used to be able to write, when I first started, I could... I write in... No, I write in longhand. Um, uh, I'm a pre-computer novelist and I, I, I think almost all my contemporaries um, write in longhand first, and then transfer it to a computer, or I think in Julian Barnes' case, still use an electric golf ball typewriter, which is a terrible affectation. Um, but, uh, um, but I write in longhand, I write the first draft in longhand, so I still I have a manuscript which, manuscripts will be gone in another gen- generation. I don't think any writer under under 40 Write in longhand now. Um, uh, in my I write in my study uh, in my house. I used to write a lot in the London Library because um, I started out cause I started writing in Oxford and I got used to writing in libraries and the noise and the people going to and fro didn't bother me. Um, and so you know I I write in uh, until I begin to feel tired and. Um, You know, I can write a 1,000 words a day, sometimes I can write 2,000 words a day. And then after that, I'll I'll correct and and rewrite. And then, maybe not the same day, because I have kind of cut off, you know, cocktail hour, (laughs) Channel 4 News, Um, uh, 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 I'll I'll type up the day's work onto the computer as a copy. Um, Because I used to have you know, there was only one copy of my novel at one stage, um, which was, was very paranoia-inducing. Um, and I used to keep it in the fridge whenever I went away, because apparently, it's good advice, is if if your house blows up, the contents of your fridge will be secure. Um, I, I, it's apocryphal, but uh, apparently a fridge was discovered in Nagasaki or Hiroshima, and uh, object and they opened it and the eggs were still intact in in size. So um, I used to keep my one copy of the manuscript. I used to keep in the fridge, um, but now I have a computer and it's backed up and so on. But um, and then um, uh, you know, I, I, if I, if I'm mentally tired, I'll read and think about what I'm going to write tomorrow. And you know, I'm halfway through chapter 11. What comes next? Or well, just need to find out a little bit more about you know how you can throw so these the are uh, uh, there at at my elbow um, and um, the next day starts and same process you know after lunch channel 4 news ah and the cocktail hour and and so it goes seven days a week seven days a week uh, seven days a week until it's until it's finished um, and it, you know I it it's my rhythm is sort of it takes me a approximately two years to figure out, research uh, the book, and, you know, nine months to a year to write it. But I'm writing, as I say, with confidence. I'm writing not far from I
0: think we're we're at the end, end of our session, and um, from my point of view, I think that was an extraordinary, illuminating, and rather intimate um, insight into the life of what is one of our greatest storytellers alive and uh, we've all been very lucky and thank you so much Will and he will be signing books back in the conservatory is that right or here or here if you'd like mm-hmm. to have your if you'd like to have your book signed he'll be here to do that if you want to buy any more copies for your mm-hmm. friends and family there are more to be bought and just thank you so very very much
1: will. Thank you <laughs>